Was the story of Jesus borrowed from ancient pagan myths? The early church fathers understood this as a problem because they were already getting the same objections from pagans. They said, what you say about Jesus? We've been saying about the you know, Dionysus and Hercules all the time. What's a big deal? And they didn't believe in them either anymore. And so the uh, Christian apologists, the defenders of the faith, would say, well, yeah, but this one is true. And uh, you see, Satan counterfeited it in advance because he knew this day would come. Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman. This is a program that presents the truth of Jesus Christ and answers the sometimes difficult questions that all of us ask about God. We want to remind you that there are a multitude of resources available online at evidenceandanswers.org. There you'll find everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Check it out today. Pat? Yes, Kevin. We're investigating, once again, the pagan connection. Did Christianity borrow its ideas from the Greek mystery religions? Now, Kevin, this is a rehashing, simply, or repackaging of an old idea. This idea that Christianity borrowed its ideas from the Greek pagan religions was introduced in the 60s and eventually died out because people saw the fallacy of this argument. However, it has come back once again, and today... Skeptics are launching new attacks, and they allege that the Greek myths, such as Mithras, Osiris, Hercules, Dionysus, and others, parallel Christianity, that there are strong parallels between these myths and Christianity, and therefore they conclude that Christianity borrowed its ideas from these Greek pagan myths. In fact, Kevin, uh, let me go to a brief clip here from a video, a very popular video called The God Who Was Not There, that explains the argument that Christians borrowed the story of Jesus from these Greek pagan myths. The early church fathers understood this as a problem because they were already getting the same objections from pagans. They said, what you say about Jesus? We've been saying about the you know, Dionysus and Hercules all the time. What's the big deal? And they didn't believe in them either anymore. And so the... Uh, Christian apologists, the defenders of the faith, would say, well, yeah, but this one is true. And uh, you see, Satan counterfeited it in advance because he knew this day would come. Now, that was from The God Who Wasn't There. The documentary did quite well. In fact, I think it's still selling on Amazon. The basic contention is that uh, Jesus never existed, but the story of Jesus was borrowed from older pagan religions. Right, that is the basic argument here. Now, let's take a look at the basic fallacies of this argument, just to sum up. There are numerous fallacies. I'm just going to mention three here. First, we have what's called the composite fallacy. In other words, skeptics, they lump together these pagan religions as if they're one religion when making comparisons with Christianity. So by combining the features of these many myths from various religions, an attempt is made to show strong parallels to Christianity. So instead of just taking a look at the individual myths, they lump them all together to show that there's some parallel here. Second, we have what's called terminology fallacy here. And there's confusion created because Christian terms are used to describe pagan beliefs. The pagan beliefs are very different from biblical teachings, but since they use the same terms, people mistakenly conclude Christianity and these pagan myths share the same beliefs. Examples of terms that are used include resurrection and virgin birth. And third, we have what's called the chronological fallacy. There's no archaeological evidence that the mystery religions were in Palestine in the first century A.D. In fact, first century Jews loathed syncretism with other religions. They denounced the other pagan religions 
and Jews and Christians were uncompromisingly monotheistic, while the Greek and Roman religions were polytheistic. And the evidence shows that the pagan religions developed and often later adopted and used ideas from Christianity as Christianity grew and spread throughout the Roman Empire. Wow. So it was kind of the other way around. Um, some of these pagan religions actually adopted after the Christian era. The early Christian era actually uh, adopted some, some Christian themes. Right. That is correct. And if you study the individual myths, the differences between Christianity and the mystery religions are significant. So it's highly unlikely Christianity would borrow its ideas from the mystery religions. In fact, some of the early Christian apologists, who are often misquoted by these skeptics, denounce these pagan myths as immoral, teaching immorality and immoral conduct, not only conducted by the heroes of these myths, but the gods that are portrayed in these myths. Yeah, so, Kevin, Christianity doesn't gain its source from these Greek myths. Christianity gains its source from Judaism. Christianity comes out out of the Old Testament teachings of Judaism. Now, that was the evidence that you cited that there really was no uh, influence of pagan religions on first century Palestine. They were fiercely Jewish. And the New Testament and uh, the history of Jesus comes out of a firmly Jewish setting. They would have not in any way wanted to taint their religion with pagan religions. Right, and if you read the New Testament, Jesus, Paul, and the apostles all appeal to the Old Testament, and you find direct teachings and fulfillments of prophecies and traditions and fulfillments of the law coming right out of the Old Testament. Pat, I think what you're saying helps us in a lot of ways, and in another way, in that some New Age uh, and Eastern religious people uh, say that while Jesus was between the ages of 12 and 30, that he traveled to the East and they studied with the Eastern mystics and everything, and then came back and incorporated that into his teaching and, and Judaism. But nothing could be further from the truth. Have you ever heard that, that story or that contention? Yes. There were several books that came out on that in the late 70s and early 80s, and really uh, that theory has pretty much gone by the wayside. There's really no historical proof that Jesus went out there to India and studied under the Brahmin priests or anything. And if you look at the basic teachings of Christianity— it is so very different from the Eastern religions. I mean, the Easterns teach a pantheistic, non-personal force, you know, monism, that this energy flows throughout the universe and flows through each one of us, while Christianity teaches there's one personal God. He is a personal being who created the universe out of nothing. Pantheism teaches that since God and the universe are one, that the universe is eternal, yet Christianity and Judaism taught that the universe has a beginning. So, you know, the, I'm sorry, finish that. Oh, so in, so in many of these major ways, the teachings of Jesus contradict the teaching of these pantheistic religions from the East, which he would have borrowed from, they allege. The scribes and the Pharisees already gave Jesus such a hard time. They really would have had a case against him had he been teaching Eastern thought rather than firmly Jewish thought that, uh, that he taught. Right, Kevin. That's a great point that you bring up. And, you know, teachings such as there is only one God who created all things, blood atonement for sin, salvation by grace alone through faith, that man is sinful by nature and can do nothing to achieve uh, right standing before God, the idea of a bodily resurrection. They are all sourced in Judaism, the teachings of the Old Testament, and very foreign to Greek mythology. 
In fact, the idea of a bodily resurrection was not taught in Greek mythology we, that uh, archaeologists can find, cannot find any documentation that it was taught in Greek mythology until after the second century A.D. Well, Pat, what do we do when someone comes up then to us and, and says that Jesus was borrowed because uh, we find a, a resurrection in Osiris and uh, in Mithraism that uh, we, we find... Uh, people being baptized in the name of Mithra and and things like that. It sounds to me like you're saying that the information that we have about these mystery religions comes after the Christian era. So if there was borrowing, then it went the other way around. Yes, and also remember, this is where the terminology fallacy comes into play. None of the resurrections in these ancient pagan myths involve the God of the universe dying a voluntary death for mankind. Only Jesus died for sins and the death of the other gods was due to hunting accidents or emasculation or other kinds of accidents. And the gods died by compulsion, not by their choice. Yeah, I think Osiris was cut into 12 pieces or or something like that and then uh, he was put back together and kind of like Frankenstein. So uh, really the similarities are very, very weak. Right. You know, and many of them die in bitterness and despair, never in self-giving love. Jesus died once for all, Hebrews chapter 7 and 9, while the pagan gods, their death is repeated. Their death and rebirth follow often with the yearly seasons. And Jesus' death was not a defeat. It was a triumph. The New Testament moods of exaltation stands in stark contrast to these pagan myths whose mood is sorrow over the fate of their gods. And finally, the death and resurrection of Christ is rooted in history, we have a lot of historical evidence to support that Jesus was indeed a real individual who lived a miraculous, sinless life, who died and rose again. There is strong historical evidence for the resurrection, as, we, as we've talked about on previous shows. And Christianity insists on, on uh, that this is a historical account. While these pagan cults make no such attempt, those who heard these accounts understood these are not historical events. Pat, you said earlier that early Christian fathers, early Christian writers, uh, were are often misquoted uh, when they say things about pagan religions and then saying, well, uh, you know, there are some things in Christianity that are similar. Are they taken out of context on this or, or, or misquoted? Yes, Kevin. You know, one of the most misquoted guys is Justin Martyr, who was a second century church father, one of the early defenders of the faith. And in his work, The Apology, he's often misquoted. Here's one of the quotes that of Justin Martyr that you'll often find that is misquoted. He says here, When we say that the Word, who is the first birth of God, was produced without sexual union, and that He, Jesus Christ, our teacher, was crucified and died and rose again and ascended into heaven— we propound nothing different from you from what you believe regarding those whom you esteem the sons of Jupiter. And so uh, many skeptics will say, see, here you see Justin Martyr saying our teachings are rooted in these Greek mythological works. Now, one of the important things you've got to do is whenever you read a writer, you've got to understand the context in which he is writing. Now, Justin Martyr is writing about 150 A.D., and the context in which he is writing, he is pleading with the Romans. They are now crucifying and persecuting and killing Christians. And his whole argument is this. Look, 
You accept these Greek pagan beliefs, which teach immorality and an immoral lifestyle. Why can't you tolerate us Christians who worship a true, the true Messiah, Jesus Christ, the true divine Son of God who died and rose again? And Christianity is an ethical religion. It teaches noble and virtuous traits. If you can tolerate these pagan myths, why can't you tolerate and allow us Christians to live in peace? So it was a plea not to be practicing discrimination against Christians? Yes, that is correct. And, you know, Kevin, he understands that these are false religions. Throughout his work, he denounces uh, these pagan myths as immoral and untrue. Let me read you a quote here from his work, the Apology, chapter 20. He says, But far be such a thought concerning the gods from every well-conditioned soul as to believe that Jupiter himself, the governor and creator of all things, was both a parasite and the son of a parasite, and that being overcome by love of base and shameful pleasures, he came in to Ganymede and those many women whom he had violated and that his sons did like actions. But as we said above, wicked devils perpetuated these things, and we have learned that those only are deified who have lived near to God in holiness and virtue. And we believe that those who live wickedly and do not repent are punished in everlasting fire. And so what Justin Martyr is saying is this. He's saying these pagan myths are untrue and they're uh, and the example set by these heroes and even the guy Jupiter himself, these are evil and immoral examples that are set before the people and therefore promote immoral conduct. Yet here we as Christians believe in a historical Jesus and we teach teach a faith that teaches holiness and virtue. So throughout his work, he's denouncing these pagan religions. But his whole argument is this. If you can tolerate these pagan myths that are not true, why can't you tolerate Christianity? And when he points to certain similarities, it's a far jump. You're reading into the text. He's saying, look, you believe that there are these gods that are born uh, not of human birth? Well, how much more then should you tolerate us Christians who believe in the virgin birth of Christ who was given birth by God? Now, when he points to these similarities, it's a big jump. You're reading into the text if you say, well, he got these from these pagan myths. No, when he's drawing similarity, he's not saying they're identical. He's not saying he, they got their source in there. He's saying if you can put up with these false religions and practices, how much more then should you put up with Christianity, which is a historical faith which teaches virtuous and noble virtues? You know, Pat, I think a good illustration uh, of this is something that you brought up in past shows, and that is there are similarities, in fact, some uncanny similarities between President Lincoln and President Kennedy. And you can Google those and, and see all these uh, alleged similarities. And if you follow the logic here, it would seem that John F. Kennedy didn't really exist. He was borrowed from Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> you know, that, that seems to be the accusation here. Uh, similarities don't prove that something was borrowed or, or that it's from the same source. Hey, you bring up a great point, Kevin. Even if you can show some kind of similarity, still you have to deal with the evidence that's there, that Jesus Christ really existed, that he really died, and he rose again. Uh, the historical evidence is very compelling for that. So even if you could draw some similarity, it doesn't negate the evidence for Christ that is there that you still have to deal with. Well, let's talk about some of these Greek myths then, Pat. And uh, you've got a cast of characters here. Greek gods that are often used by skeptics, often used by skeptics to say, see, Jesus was borrowed. Right. You know, when you study the individual myths themselves, you're going to find that there are big differences between 
these myths and Christianity. So it's highly unlikely Christianity would borrow from these myths. First one that's often quoted is Mithraism. Mithraism rose, arose in the Asia Minor region about the first century B.C., and it was relatively an insignificant military cult that gained some popularity, but it was after Christianity that it flowered. Now, according to this myth, the god Mithra supposedly was virgin-born when he emerged from a rock. He was carrying a knife and a torch and wearing a Phrygian cap. He battled first with the sun, then a primeval bull, thought to be the first act of creation. Mithra slew the bull, which then became the ground for life for the human race. Now, some versions have it that Mithra, when he was born from the rock, he was stuck. And some shepherds found him stuck in the rock and helped pull him out. Okay, now, do you see the parallels, the strong parallels here between the virgin birth of Christ and Mithra? Jesus was born of a virgin. Mithra was born from a rock. Right. So as you can see, it's quite obvious. Uh, they're very, very different. It's very, uh, the strong parallel is not there. It's an over-exaggerated statement. Now, some believe that this myth of Mithra teaches a resurrection, but as Dr. Ron Nash and other historians document, document the Mithraism did not teach a bodily resurrection until after the second century AD. In fact, the Greek writer Aeschylus sums up the Greek view regarding death and resurrection, and he writes this, When the earth has drunk up a man's blood, once he is dead, there is no resurrection. So Mithraism had no concept of death and resurrection of its God and no place for any concept of rebirth in its early stages. So in its early stages, the whole idea of rebirth or resurrection would have been completely foreign to its outlook. Also, it was a military cult, therefore it's highly unlikely that it would have appealed to non-military people like the Christians, and it did not flower until after Christianity. And this alleged virgin birth of Mithra differs greatly from the virgin birth of Christ. So you can't say, you know, this whole idea that there is a strong parallelism here is, is completely false. seems like I hear you really making an emphasis here, Pat, that Mithraism predates Christianity, but what we know about it and when it flowered, uh, there could have been some real influences from Christianity onto Mithraism, and Mithraism is the one who adopted maybe a few, uh, some, some Christian terminology, especially since uh, it was uh, popular in Rome. That's correct, Kevin. That's what all the evidence shows, that it flowered after Christianity, and therefore we don't find any documentation of an idea of a resurrection until after Christianity. Well, let's take a look at another one. How about the cult of Dionysus? Uh, Dionysus is alleged to have a virgin birth and also miracles similar to that of Jesus Christ. Well, let's take a look. There are several versions of these Greek myths, so as I'm speaking here and telling the myths, you may have heard of a different version, uh, but there are many versions that are out there. Okay, now, here's one version. One version teaches that Zeus fell in love with a mortal female, and as a result of their sexual union, this woman became pregnant with Dionysus. Now, Hera, Zeus's wife in a jealous rage, has the titans tear up the baby, and all is torn but his heart, which Zeus uses to recreate Dionysus and implants the fetus in the womb of a woman called Semele, and she gives birth to Dionysus. See the parallel between the virgin birth of Christ and the virgin birth of Dionysus? Here's a second version. Zeus has sexual relations with Semele and impregnates her. Hera, in a rage, whispers doubts in Semele's ear, and she begins to doubt if Zeus is indeed the father of her child. So deeply troubled, she demands to see Zeus, but Zeus is reluctant to appear because he knows that if 
she sees him that she'll be burnt to a crisp. Well, she pleads and pleads and finally he appears to her and she is burnt to a crisp when she sees him. Zeus takes the fetus and sews it into his thigh and eventually gives birth to this child. So you see the alleged virgin birth and the, quote, resurrection of Dionysus, you can see, greatly differs from the birth and resurrection account of Christ. Fantastical tales, uh, yarns, you know, that are uh, absolutely unbelievable as compared to the events in the life of Christ, which are historically based. Right. And when you read these myths, I mean, you can put a fifth grader in front of these myths and say, is this a real account? And he'll know, no, this is legend. But if you put him and you have him read the Gospels, he'll know exactly right away this is a historical figure. It's written in plain language. There are historical references, historical figures. He can tell the difference between myth and history. Here's another one that we hear often. Osiris, he's believed to be one of the gods of Egypt. Now, according to this legend, he left Isis to rule Egypt when he decided to spread his rule around the world. He returned only after civilizing the entire earth and he found that Isis ruled wisely and his kingdom was still in perfect order. However, it was at this point his brother Set began plotting against him, and there are many stories how Osiris was killed. The most common is that Set held an extravagant banquet and invited Osiris. And after the festivities were over, Set produced a magnificent coffin and offered it as a gift to whomever it fitted the best. And of course, it had been built for Osiris's form, so when he got in it, it fit him perfectly, and it is then that the evil set shut the lid and threw the coffin into the Nile River. Now, Set took Osiris's place as king while the grieving Isis searched for Osiris's remains, and she found the body in a faraway place called Byblos, brought it back to Egypt, and hid it in the marsh. However, the evil set found it and tore the body to pieces, throwing them again into the river. And Isis collected all the pieces, uh, 14 pieces, except for one, which had been eaten by the fish. And she bandaged the body together, which they believe was the first mummy. And this mummy was then transformed into an ox. And it's in this form Osiris traveled to the underworld to become king and judge over the dead. So this alleged resurrection of Osiris is not a resurrection, but a more of a zombie-like existence of the underworld, unlike the physical and glorified resurrection of Christ. You know, first century Jews, Pat, would say, get out of here with all that nonsense, you know, that is not at all what we would purport uh, to happen in the events here. They didn't want to have anything to do with all these pagan stories and myths and religions. You know, Pat, C.S. Lewis tells a story. He was sitting around the fire with an ardent skeptic. I mean, the atheist of atheists there at Oxford. And he and C.S. Lewis were having a conversation. And this atheist said something that stunned C.S. Lewis. And he said, Rum thing, seems that all this talk about all those ancient dying and rising gods, seems like it actually happened once. And he was talking about Jesus, he's saying. You know, we have stories and they have some similarities, you know, uh, at least on the surface. But he said, you know what? It looks as if the historical evidence points to it happening at least once. And coming from such a skeptic, C.S. Lewis said you would have to uh, have known the guy to see how powerful what he said was. Right, Kevin. You know, you bring up a good point. C.S. Lewis, a literary scholar, was easily able to show the difference between myth and a historical evidence, I mean, a historical document. And he clearly states that the Gospels and the Bible, 
if any literary scholar or anyone reading either accounts, they could clearly distinguish between myth and a historical work. So as I demonstrated here, there are few parallels when the myths are studied individually between the individual myths and Christianity. Terms that they use, unfortunately, they try to interchange these terms and use the same terms, but they mean very different things when you study the myths individually. And the date of any resurrection account follows Christianity and occur in a mythical realm, but not in a historical realm. And as we stated earlier, Kevin, even if you could show similarities, there aren't any. I mean, uh, even if you could show strong similarities, which there are not. But even if you could show strong similarities, it's still, you still need to deal with the evidence for Jesus Christ, the historical evidence that is there. It does not, just because there may be similarities, it does not negate the evidence that is there. Thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers today with Pat Zuckerman. And our prayer is that we answer the hard questions that all of us ask and that we equip you to know what you believe and why you believe it. And if you're a seeker or a skeptic, we hope we've challenged you with the various evidences which support the claims of Christ. There are a multitude of resources available on our website, evidenceandanswers.org. Interviews with leading scholars, past shows that you can download, and we deal with topics from atheism to Zen Buddhism to Islam to the occult, the cults, agnosticism, and contemporary issues which faces today. And by the way, when you purchase our resources, you keep Pat Zuckerman speaking out all over the world. Help support a quality apologetics program for radio and podcast and Pat's speaking engagements on college campuses and churches all over the world. Evidenceandanswers.org. Go there today. Evidenceandanswers.org. For Pat Zuckerman, I'm Kevin Harris. Thanks again for listening.